0: This episode is brought to you by eLeap, the Emerging Leaders in Environmental and Energy Policy Network. Founded in 2011, the eLeap Network aims to stimulate transatlantic conversation and debate about pressing issues related to energy and the environment. The network's more than 100 members from over 20 countries engage in online debates on topics of the day and meet regularly for experiential study tours and other face-to-face activities. The eLeap Network is a joint initiative of Ecologic Institute, Ecologic Institute U.S., and the Atlantic Council, and made possible by funding from the European Commission and the Alliance Foundation for North America. To find out more about the eLeap Network, visit us at www.eleap.eu. This is the fourth and final installment in our series on tipping points, finding the energy-climate balance. My name is Nick Evans. In this series, we have presented highlights from the final ELITE conference, which was organized by the Atlantic Council and Ecologic Institute and took place June 21st through 22nd in Washington, D.C. All audio was recorded live during the conference. This episode features a panel discussion on the future of the Paris Climate Agreement. What are the next steps in implementation? What challenges may arise now that the current U.S. administration has decided to leave the agreement? Does this represent a roadblock, or may it have a galvanizing effect, raising the ambition of other countries and subnational actors within the U.S.? In short, where do we go from here? The conference panel included Dr. Jennifer Turner, director of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center, Matthias Duva, head of Climate Ecologic Institute in Berlin, and David Livingston, associate fellow at the Energy and Climate Program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The panel was moderated by former Ambassador Richard Morningstar, Founding Director of the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. I do hope you enjoy the episode.
1: So, just to begin very briefly from a more macro standpoint as to what the Trump decision on Paris means, and one question, some of these, Secretary certainly dealt with, what, what's the overall effect on foreign policy? Is it going to make it much more difficult for us to deal on other foreign policy issues uh, with key partners and allies? The second question we, that comes up all the time, are we just ceding leadership uh, to China and the EU uh, on climate issues, which uh, certainly uh, our panelists, our China and EU experts can comment on that. And will China take up the cudgel uh, and, uh, and really become a leader? Uh, and again, what about Europe? Well, I think we can be uh, pretty confident on that they will. And what effect is all this gonna have on the development of new technologies? Does the decision slow that down at all? And another issue that I I know is people are really concerned about is assistance to developing countries with respect to reaching climate goals. And does our withdrawal from that or notice of withdrawal have an effect there? But then on the other side of the coin, as, as Secretary Moniz basically said, is the cow out of the barn already? And will market forces determine, process, determine progress on lowering emissions? Also, the role of gas, the role of new technologies, and as he pointed out, Secretary Minis pointed out the role of business, which has been very key uh, over the past uh, several months in public public-private uh, cooperation. And can we get to bipartisan cooperation on things like uh, on things like carbon? Uh, carbon pricing. The Schultz Baker Summers articles on uh, on carbon on, on carbon pricing and providing dividends to create a win-win situation. How much is that going to play? All, not just for the pa- this panel, but for your consideration also. Also, Rod Richardson is here, who's going to have an excellent panel after lunch, talking. He's done some fascinating work on tax exemptions with respect to green bonds to encourage investment. Uh, and also to encourage jobs, which would be seemingly very important to the Trump administration. So, uh, I, I know you'll look forward to what he says uh, this afternoon. So, having having said all that, let me uh, uh, turn it uh, turn it over first to David Livingston for your each of, They're they're limiting themselves to about three minutes each, and then we really want to get audience audience participation.
2: Great. Um, well, it's quite the smorgasbord of questions, uh, so I'll
1: only <laughs> take you three hours. Yeah. <laughs> anyway.
2: So I'll try and uh, set the stage a little bit. But but let me first say uh, thank you very much to the Atlanta Council, to the to the organizers who worked so hard to put Tipping Points together. I think it's a great and and very uh, um, and a very very much needed uh, 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 event. Um, and thanks to you, Dick, for for moderating this and for the great work you're doing with the program over here, I think it's terrific. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the perhaps, um, uh, depending on you know the, the views of the audience, the perhaps unpopular uh, pers- position of trying to explain what legal risks uh, the Trump administration might have seen in the Paris Agreement, uh, considering that that is the rationale that they stated, the public rationale that they stated for um, uh, announcing their intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, and then I'll make a few points just about the the legal steps uh, that come next, and then we can we can broaden out the discussion. So uh, I would first make the point that one's views of the legal risks that emanate from the from the agreement depend very much on one's views of whether the agreement is legally binding at all. Um, the administration clearly believed that there were at least Elements of the agreement that could be construed as legally binding. Um, On the other side, if you talk to the attorneys and and the negotiators that worked very hard for many years uh, to make Paris happen, they explicitly uh, say that they, you know, they designed this in such a way that it would not be legally binding. They tried to make this as flexibly uh, as flexible as they could as they could possibly make it, in order to avoid many of the pitfalls of the Kyoto Protocol and in order to get China and India and other developing countries into the agreement with their own commitments, uh, which was perhaps the major fatal flaw of all previous attempts to address climate change globally. Um, So some contend, uh, however, I will acknowledge, some contend that with the exception of provisions in the Paris Agreement that are clearly written in aspirational language, uh, you know, countries will aspire to, countries will make every effort to, et cetera, et cetera, with the exception of those provisions, like Article 4.4 4, that are written in aspirational language, that the Paris Agreement is otherwise binding under international law. Um, uh, others, uh, as I noted, think that the agreement is generally non-binding without differentiating between its terms or articles. Uh, there is another uh, group of folks who believe that, as a matter of constitutional law, uh, the Senate's advice and consent was required for the U.S. to join the Paris Agreement, um, and, and uh, according to this view, since the United States never fully assented to be bound because President Obama uh, didn't submit the agreement to the Senate, uh, uh, it was never kind of uh, ratified and, and it doesn't have that, that legal force. Um, so again, it very much depends on, on where what, what your beliefs are about the legal nature of the agreement. But I would note that the overwhelming uh, majority of those who are involved in its drafting believe that it is completely legally non-binding. Uh, there's also an interesting note here that just that there's a, a sort of dormant section in the Clean Air Act here in the United States called Section 115, which affords EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the power to um, essentially uh, uh, impose regulations or impose measures meant to address uh, uh, public health and, uh, and environmental issues that impact other countries if other countries afford essentially the same protections or essentially the same rights to the United States. This section 115 has never been used before. And so it's really untested. And we don't know whether um, this would have perhaps created uh, uh, legal, um, uh, let's say, legal difficulties for the administration. Uh, but, But this section 115 of the EPA... Uh, or of the Clean Air Act might be one of the things that was driving them to interpret legal risks in the agreement. Um, The the final thing I should note here before handing it off to to my colleagues here on the panel is just that do not uh, interpret the announcement that Trump gave in the Rose Garden as the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. It is in fact not even the legal notification of the intent to withdraw from the agreement because under Article 28 of the Paris Agreement, a country can notify its intent to withdraw only three years from the entry into force of the agreement. The agreement entered into force November 4th of last year, November 4th, 2016. It means the earliest that the United States can legally submit its intent to withdraw from Paris is November 4th, 2019, and then there's a one year process before it's withdrawn. In November 4th, 2020, is the very first day that the United States could be legally withdrawn from the agreement, and it's one day after the next presidential election. (laughs) I'll let you figure out for yourselves the significance of that and the implications.
3: Was that intentional?
4: (laughs) Matthias, please. Matthias, thank thank you so much. Um, uh, So I I want to uh, echo um, David's thanks to our dear colleagues and partners at Atlantic Council for putting on this wonderful conference, and I just want to add also, um, how impressed I am, but the, the inputs and seeing sort of the combined powers of both the Millennium Leadership Program and ELEAP together in one room, it's uh, really quite astounding. And uh, on the subject of you know, the EU perspective on the Paris Agreement and where we go from here, I'd sort of first uh, take a step back from the, the announcements uh, in the Rose Garden and sort of give you a little bit of context for the EU perspective. So. To start off with, I think there are uh, three key pillars for that kind of drive EU climate policy. On the one, it's always been um, a desire to act on cl- climate change in a global context. The EU has been for you know, 25 years plus been a champion of a multilateral um, international solution on climate change. Um, but it's been trying to help advance that not only through a variety of, of dialogues and talking to other countries, but also by... Um, actually setting um, as kind of a second uh, pillar uh, targets uh, for itself. For 2010, that was the case for 2020, and now for 2030, and always a little bit ahead of key milestones in the international negotiations as a means of trying to help uh, drive forward the conversation. Then a third key pillar, because we had, uh, um, I think it was... um, our dear colleague from Stat all this morning saying, you know, politicians are very good about targets, not so good about measures. So policies and measures and actual instruments for helping achieve those targets is the, the third pillar. And uh, on that front, the EU has been developing a whole toolbox uh, of stuff over um, the last 20 years. And we're right now in a, a process of actually a whole set of, uh, I think, up to sort of 10 or more pieces of legislation being negotiated in, in parallel that are helping to shape the regulatory landscape for achieving the 2030 targets on renewables, on greenhouse gases, on energy efficiency, and actually on infrastructure and energy security also. Um, Having said all that, there are uh, really a number of challenges that the EU has in, in advancing its climate policy. On the one hand, there is, of course, the fact that the EU is not a homogenous block of countries, but the political consensus and political consensus on advancing climate policy is actually hard fought uh, every time. So these <coughs> negotiations that I mentioned earlier also, they are contentious. They are contentious between uh, countries, inside countries, between you know, the different EU institutions. So this is, this is actually always a struggle. It's not easy to get where, where these things stand right now. There's also the needs, um, the the realization that one needs to much more directly integrate climate and energy policy. And we have a new framework for that that's called the Energy Union, and and so you know that that comes with all kinds of uh, implications also. Uh, on what is, a, again, a very tricky issue, managing cross-border integration within the EU, let's say, on markets, energy markets, energy infrastructure. And that at a time when there's a general question about the internal cohesion of the union as a whole, you know, so you all know about Brexit, or, you know, the, the, the Euro crisis, and the questions about internal EU um, solidarity that that has posed. So that's another big challenge that also impacts on climate and energy. and then. Um, there is the the question of how we're going to manage the structural change, the transformation towards decarbonization, because so many sectors will need to fundamentally change. And that's, you know, we're at the stage where for the 2030 targets, with like minus 40% emissions reductions and uh, electricity from renewables of up to 50% by 2030, uh, we're moving into territory that is really unknown and where we're having to find new solutions. And so, how to manage the social dimension how to trigger additional in- innovation that those are also challenges for for advancing new climate policy and then of course there's also the important geopolitical dimension and so the, that connects us back with uh, this conversation and and the announcement from the u.s because uh, you know the u.s have always played a very special role in international negotiations Always been sort of, or most of the time, been a difficult partner. But especially for Paris, of course, they were absolutely instrumental in, in getting it done and getting it together. And I, especially that uh, you know, U.S. Uh, um, China collaboration and agreement were key. So the the question is, can can the EU even? fill that void. And I, I think I'm I'm afraid I don't you know sort of have a very clear answer just yet. I think they can definitely not do it by themselves. They cannot replace the US in in such arrangements. So sort if of, they don't have the geopolitical leverage, they they will have a hard time making up finan- financial gaps because getting money for payments into you know other parts of the world on climate change is just as political contentious as it is here, I would think. So uh, you know they're, they're certainly in the process of trying to, you know, regroup, and um, have made very clear statements. Of their intent that this is not changing the Paris Agreement, doesn't change an iota of their commitment to the process and implementing it. And they're engaging in additional uh, uh, diplomatic activity to try and and get kind of bilateral, multilateral dialogues going that will kind of help sustain the Paris Agreement in what is uh, obviously now going to be an even more kind of polycentric and, and multi-centric climate governance system.
1: Let me just say, jump in for a second before turning it over to uh, Joanne. that uh, you know, we withdrew to, from an agreement once before. We withdrew George W. Bush, withdrew well. from the Kyoto Protocol in 2001 and I was still our ambassador to the EU at that Mm. point in time, and that was a terrible decision, uh, and as is, I think, this decision, and it did affect seriously our relationship uh, with uh, with the EU and with EU member states. But in spite of that, because of our conversion, because of our gas, you know, the, the development of shale gas and the conversion to gas and the electricity market, we've basically led the, you know, led the world in uh, carbon reductions. So it'll be interesting to see, going back to the question about the marketplace, whether we can continue to do so even not part of the agreement. In any event, I'll leave it at that.
3: So on your smorgasbord I'm going to nibble a little bit on the China leadership question and also a little bit on US China relations. Maybe on the latter I should say my very first policy brief that I published back when I started at the Wilson Center was called Crouching Suspicion's Hidden Potential. So it was about US China energy and environment and climate cooperation and it's it kind of says like though I wrote that like many years you know near the beginning when I started at the Wilson Center and it's a lot of it's still so true. I mean that what I've seen is that Energy and environment and climate cooperation have really, they've really bloomed into a, a really fruitful area for the two countries to cooperate. And it's not just the government. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, when we pulled out of the of the first climate agreement, and you know, and and, and, and under the Bush administration, he wasn't interested in energy cooperation. But you have the US foundations, the NGOs, think tanks like mine and others, who continued working with China. And so that, you know, so that, Shaping the laws, having exchanges, and so when the Obama administration came on board, you know it was like hitting the wave, you know surfing, and so that that in the past eight years with the Obama administration, you know he was building on what has really been four decades of kind of on again, off again energy and environmental and climate cooperation, and 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 I've kind of. Argued, you know, a lot of people come to my meetings. Argue this as well. It's one of the few areas where there's goodwill between the two countries, and we know there's lots of tension between them. And and so so there's many people in my in my network who are, who are saddened by the you know the withdrawal, not withdrawal, whatever with with, with the with the with the climate agreement, is that how it's going to affect our relationship with China, right? And so that I mean, actually, the U.S. and China together, we were the, we were the leaders on climate, and now I am optimistic that China is going to move, they're still gonna continue, you know, they're cutting back on coal-fired power plants, the renewables are going forward, they're trying to correct problems of getting all those renewables on the grid. I can bore you till, the cow- till those cows actually come home on all the details of how China may or may not make, you know, keep lowering their CO2 emissions, but you should know this. Most of the people in my network say, China has already cat- peaked at coal. They probably have already met their Paris commitment. So, leadership. Wouldn't leadership mean, oh, we've met it, we're gonna do more now, right? We're kind of wondering with China, are they really going to do more? I mean, Xi Jinping, he is flirting quite seriously with the idea that we will lead on Paris. Um, Because, you know, he wants to be at the table setting global norms and institutions, but we're not, a lot of people, we feel like that maybe China doesn't really want to do that because what's the first thing they did after the US pulled out? High Europe. Hello, country of California, right? You know, and, and that, you know, that, that, that China, you know, they, I'm not saying that, you know, they are strong, they've got capacity, but, but they also have a lot of gaps, and that having these partnerships, you know, I mean, you have to have China. Right. I mean, you, you need China, and it's so, but again, I'm not crying in my coffee yet, I mean, because I still see the cooperation continuing with or without the federal lead. Um, but also, you know, but maybe on the sad side, you're bad, you know, good, bad, ugly, of, of China's leadership on climate, I mean, they are having difficulty in, 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 you know, they're decreasing coal fired power plants, but a lot of provinces, you know, they're still building some of their own because they can make more money from that. They don't want to buy the the solar or wind power coming in. Uh, Overseas, the Belt Belt and Road Project, you know, China, they're doing lots of investment globally. 80% of all their global investments in energy is going to fossil fuels. There's like 100 projects under the Belt and Road Project that are coal fired power plants. That said, it's not all black and white, ladies and gentlemen, because the countries that, you know, Pakistan, they're saying bring it on, right? But the Chinese, you know, the sad part is they're not sending their cleanest coal technologies. Last little factoid, and then you yank me off the stage here, is that in the 100 top coal-fired power plants in China are way more efficient than our 100 top ones. Our 100, the 100 top U.S. coal-fired power plants do not meet China's standards, right? But those are not, these These are, these are the ultra supercritical coal-fired power plants, these are not the ones that are being built in Pakistan and other countries. Some of it is that the Chinese don't necessarily, it's not about, they're more expensive and the countries don't necessarily want to buy them. And also as they've closed down these smaller, dirtier coal-fired power plants, there's engineers and folks who can actually do that work and they're the ones being sent over to build them in the other countries. All right. I think I've given them enough, enough information to be dangerous. Okay. You ready to open it up?
1: So let's open it up for your comments and your questions. And don't be shy, because if you don't, we have 40 minutes left. I taught, I taught several taught law school classes for several years, and I'm perfectly capable of using the Socratic method. So, so let's see some hands. I've only seen one. Two, brave, two, one brave person,
4: three, Three. okay, right here in the front. The fact that it's a town hall doesn't mean that we're all sort of walking around, right? (laughs) Hi,
5: um, thank you very much for your thoughts. Uh, I'm Andrea, I'm a policy analyst at the Institute for European Environmental Policy, so I do work on EU policy, and I would be actually interested to hear both Matthias from you and Jennifer on the future of the EU-China cooperation and what are your thoughts? Where this could lead to, and, and what are the options?
4: Should we collect a few? No, I think I'd prefer that. Probably. Okay, well, we could do that. Why
1: don't we'll we have no another good idea? Let's have a okay in the back row.
6: Good morning. My name is Aaron and I'll build on my colleague's question on cooperation um, and focus that question in the UN Security Council. I'm a 2017 Millennium Fellow uh, working at the State Department with many, many years of multilateral experience. And one thing that's one thing that struck me is the absence of climate change as part of the peace and security agenda over, you know, say, well, the last. Pardon me. The last. The first meeting uh, the council had on peace and security and climate change was 2007. I think this is an opportunity for China and particularly the EU countries in the P three to move this agenda forward and to some extent leverage the United States into opening up this debate. Do you see any prospects for that, particularly now that France is led by Macron and more friendly climate change policies? Also, as you said, China is China could really benefit from a change in perception vis the UN Security Council is typically seen as a spoiler. Do you think this is something that China would see as an opportunity as well?
1: Thanks. Okay. Well, let's take one more question. There was a hand and, over here, but towards it, the back. We'll come
4: come to the oh, accept yeah. comments, right? Yeah, we well, well, can do comments. You don't know. have to ask your questions. Yeah, exactly. Sounds good. But you can ask. You a can ask questions. I am Linus. I work with the World Resources Institute on urban transportation and climate policies. Um, Governor Whitman, who was here yesterday, opened, mentioned the possibility of carbon tariffs, so cr- climate-related um, trade sanctions, that. I heard it was also floated around quickly by the U.S. delegation to Marrakesh after the election. Um, my question is, uh, what's the prospect of this form of tough leadership um, by, by other uh, blocks on the U.S.? And do you think that's um, patriotic or unpatriotic to float around this idea in the U.S.? What, yeah, be curious. Okay,
5: who wants
1: to start? Uh, Don't all scream so, at once. So we have uh, future
3: EU uh, relations, uh, yeah. the climate security on yeah. the UN, and then
2: patriotism. I, I'm happy to take this question on uh, sure, the carbon tariffs, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is really interesting. Um, I, I think it's an area to watch. So, uh, I, And correct me if I'm not understanding the question correctly. But, but particularly in the EU, this has been discussed a bit, uh, carbon border adjustment. So during the French... Presidential primary and the Republican primary, Nicolas Sarkozy made a point of saying, uh, you know, maybe we should consider if the US ever does pull out of the Paris Agreement, uh, levying a two to five percent. Border adjustments uh, on all imported goods to account for the fact that they have the illegal subsidy of not uh, correctly pricing the carbon externality in the United States, um, uh, or participating in this, you know, global climate framework. That was seconded by uh, uh, after the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, um, uh, Martin Schulz, uh, the challenger to Merkel in the in the German uh, Chancellor election, uh, said. Surely, we can't. Uh, there's no further progress to be had on TTIP. We basically can't make any more concessions on on tariff levels uh, if the United States is outside of the Paris Agreement. This is interesting as well. And then also from the private sector, the chairman of ArcelorMittal, the steel major, um, has also voted the idea of car- uh, Europe having a carbon border adjustment. You
1: know, when they- one other, ask other countries imposed some kind of sanctions or tariffs. There would be some serious WTO questions. Exactly. And whether whether or not one could justify this under some kind of national security exemption would be yeah. actually an, an, an interesting an interesting question. But aside from that, the politics of doing that could be very, uh, let's say counterproductive if, you know, resulted in some kind of trade war. So I think it's very unlikely that this would happen. This is
2: the point I would make is I think it's extremely risky and dangerous to go down this step because there's, in academic circles, there's the idea that you could get a virtuous trade war, it would essentially allow carbon pricing to blossom or carbon mechanism to blossom as a result of carbon border adjustments. I think this really downplays the possibility that retaliation happens uh, in different areas and in different sectors. If, if, if the, the Trump administration will not respond by erecting its own carbon price, so it keeps that revenue here instead of sending it to Europe, it will simply retaliate by stiffer penalties on steel. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. And, and to your point in WTO, it would test the WTO in Article 21, the national security exemption, like it's never been tested before. Uh, and I think it would, would, would ultimately be to the detriment of, of the multilateral trade system.
4: But, uh, if I just may add to that, I think sort of you also need to sort of see what are the audiences that these statements are being made to. And I think, you know, the, the three examples you just quoted, are basically all for the benefit of european audiences and electoral audiences largely so you know sort of you need to understand that in that context that that doesn't mean that there isn't sort of a also an audience sort of that that you know is on the other side of the atlantic that you know should be hearing that you know europeans aren't quite pleased with uh, the the current state of affairs and are potentially willing to contemplate you know some kind of reaction to it so you know the, i think there there is both but uh, i think the the you know primary driver is that, that this is an issue for kind of inside the EU, um, but I would otherwise share the sentiment that it's sort of the likelihood of that materializing um, would, you know, sort of is very low and would only be happening as part of some, uh, if the bigger overall picture, including these other bilateral trade arrangements, sort of escalates in some form.
1: Okay, we have, but there were also, there were the two
2: earlier questions. Yeah, so what well, with the, with the, 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 China,
4: Europe. China, Europe, China, Europe. <laughs>
3: China, Europe. I mean, you know, Well, I think that, you know, we could do this stuff. I think the U.S., in terms of our foundation NGOs and think tanks and universities, there's, there's been a lot more engagement with China on environment and climate, but that doesn't mean you guys are slackers. I mean, because the, the Chinese have been working particularly more with the government, with the governments, like the Germans and the U.K. folks on a lot of it, like, auto emissions. And But your foundations, like, you know, in, in the U.K., the Children Investment Fund Foundation supports a number of U.S. NGOs, like NRDC, that's really been key in helping to promote, like, coal... Cap, consumption cap in China. So, I mean, I kind of see that this kind of cooperation will continue, but I'll have to defer to you on whether or not you see, you made in your opening comments, whether or not the the European governance, governments will kind of come together in their cooperation with no. China.
4: I, I think that's a tricky one. You know, sort of Andrea, you know well that uh, you know sort of Europeans have a hard time uh, getting a joint, uh, you know, foreign policy together as a <laughs> European um, uh, foreign and security policy. And you know, EU-China relations on all these other um, you know dimensions aren't always easy. You know, so um, in the UK, for example, steel workers, uh, you know, sort of are protesting sort of um, uh, against Chinese imports to Europe or sort of the potential sort of dumping uh, um, uh, prices on on the world market and so there there are a variety of areas where sort of the relationship is problematic, but you know there isn't there is a kind of a, a need right now I think that's perceived on on both sides for engaging on climate related issues and so you know, I think they'll have to come up with ways of strengthening the existing collaboration, which uh, certainly indeed on the governmental level exists sort of on the areas such as uh, the Europeans have been for years supporting the development of the carbon market programs mm-hmm. in the pilot the regions yeah. and, and cities, but also now the national system that, uh, that China is Which is uh, supposed developing. to launch this year, people. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, you know. It's going to be spectacular <laughs> yeah.
3: or oh, yeah, well, so not. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, a, that's a very good I mean, question. We don't it's, know, but but again, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, you know, again, he, he's seen his legacy in this. So there's, there is actually a lot of political... push behind it and also the comment about the security I mean one of the you know China's concerned about their air pollution issue which is obviously something that galvanized them to you know want to get lower the coal emissions but they also do see the security concerns about the flooding the increased storms the droughts and so I mean it's been in you know Chinese policy documents for a while that they see climate change as a security threat to the country so I think they'd be open Mike Again, they'd be open to these kind of conversations at the UN.
2: It was also under Germany's G7 presidency that we got a major report on uh, climate-related, uh, or, or climate as a, as a threat multiplier, mm-hmm. climate as a, as a source of compound risk uh, across refugee issues, a uh, number of conflict issues. So it should be said that uh, at least under Germany's G7 presidency there were some attempts to, to address that security angle.
7: Yeah.
1: Just very briefly going back on the security question and the sanctions question and so forth, and back to my original, the first question that I raised in my introduction, I think that the effect, rather than any kind of direct action by countries, it will have, it, I think it will have an indirect effect from the standpoint of making our foreign policy in general a lot more difficult uh, to gain co-op. Uh, it's gotta be difficult anyway but a lot more difficult, even more difficult to gain cooperation from various countries as a result of this decision. Okay, more questions. Okay, I see two here, three, and then we'll come on the next round over
7: here. Ambassador Morningstar Morningstar and and, uh, our illustrious panel. Uh, You know, you mentioned at the beginning the uh, uh, tax exemption for green bonds. Uh, which I will be talking about later. And at risk of stealing thunder from myself later, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, you know, curious. You know, we we just mentioned tariffs and the political risk of doing that. And you know, I think that possibly a lot of that political risk has to do with the fact that the tariffs are a punishment mechanism, and punishment mechanisms produce opposition; they produce blowback. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why sometimes policies based on those are difficult to pass. Um, tax exemption is a tax cut. It's a reward. It's a positive feedback loop. Might that be a mechanism for an international agreement on tax exemption globally for green bonds? And do you think that this is a an interesting area to explore, perhaps?
1: Yeah.
5: Uh, okay, we'll, we'll answer yeah, that. Let's get to okay, the we're gathering, gathering. Okay, so I'm not going to talk on that point. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm tempted to. My name is Max Krunig from the Ecologic Institute. I'm just going to uh, ask two questions in a way. One is if you look at the current declaration or the recent declaration in the Rose Garden um, and the reaction, should that just be taken as also a domestic? declaration to domestic voters and as david you mentioned actually legally this is not really anything yet or can't be legally uh, recognized as anything so should the international other international community basically go on with business and not shut the doors Or should there be some reaction like we see that with the Brexit where the European partners of the UK are reacting almost with anger towards the UK and making this an emotional issue and making it maybe even more difficult if there's gonna be this turnaround as you hinted at in 2020 possibly. So this is is one question then slightly linked to the money side is the climate funding. Um, should the international community just step up and say, oh, don't worry, we cover that, and be generous in light of being accommodating, or be strong and strict and, and insist and, 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 and be vigorous. So, that's okay, it. Okay,
1: thank you, and then yeah. uh, Andrew. Yeah.
8: Thank you, so, so I, wanna, I wanna dig in on leadership, right? So, Chinese leadership. European leadership is going to replace American leadership, and it's everybody puts this out as a good thing. Uh, we need leadership; somebody leads us. But but just because you're leading doesn't mean you're going in the same direction, right? You know. So so you could be leading towards more uh, climate, more action on climate change. But but what's the difference between Chinese leadership, between EU leadership, and American leadership? Because you know, if you look at both Kyoto Protocol and Paris Agreement, you see real sort of kind of keys in American leadership on climate. One, voluntary. You know, we don't want, we, we want voluntary. We want the whole world to, to, to do something. That was the, the whole problem with Kyoto was that, you know, this difference between Annex one and Annex one right? And that's why the Senate wouldn't ratify it. So, so we want the whole, the whole world to put something out there. And we don't want it to be legally binding, um, and we really want market-based mechanisms. And then we heard uh, Secretary Moniz, and I, and I think this this is a key part of it too, is the uh, talk about mission innovation and really the business innovation agenda. You don't hear that from Europeans when they talk about climate. It's it's about okay, we need we need a cap, and we need to just get to work, and. I'm not clear yet what the Chinese leadership looks like, but knowing kind of some about the, the Chinese way of doing business and governing, it seems like it would be more centralized, more government-led, more five-year plans of stuff versus separating it back and letting the business lead, letting markets work on it. So uh, I guess i just... Can you dive into that a little bit more? Where where does leader Chinese leadership take us that American leadership wouldn't have taken us?
1: So. Okay, let me, just to be, maybe just to start off on the question on green bond exemptions, I think it relates to the innovation point as well, that, yeah, I think we have to look at all these things, and these are the kinds of things that can, I don't think we should give up on the Trump administration. I don't, they're here, you know, I mean, we can, moan and do whatever (laughs) they're here at least until 2020 but they are interested in innovation competitiveness and i think that's where the eu and the u.s has to cooperate possibly, and then we'll hear more about the bond, green bonds, but on other, thing, you know, on, on other, on other things as well.
2: Can, can I make a point to that, actually, yeah. Dick, that connects with, with Max's point, which is, okay. so, yes, uh, read this as first and foremost about speaking to a domestic audience and not about a statement on the Paris Agreement itself, right? The Paris Agreement is a tool or a mechanism for getting out there and making a press conference and saying some things that ultimately have no legal effect yet for the next few years, uh, that's that's meant to targeting a, a interpreted audience uh, that is that is interpreted to be the president's political base. That being said, I think we have we, should, we, we have reason to believe that the, that the administration may be overestimating the impact that this has or the size of this base that's satisfied by withdrawal from the agreement. Early polling shows that it's, it's, it's fairly unpopular, uh, the withdrawal or the announced withdrawal. Um, furthermore, let's just have a little bit of realism as well about what, what is the actual picture in the energy market today. So there are, there are 77,000 more or less coal jobs in the United States today that's less than the Arby's chain. And just because, but I mean, this is really important to and remember. This isn't even that good. Right, <laughs> and, and, and by the way, every time we put in a new sweet green or a Chipotle down the block, we don't talk about a war on roast beef, right? right? <laughs> so, so, so let's keep that in mind. Secondly, the, top, the, the five states in the United States that produce the, the, uh, the highest percentage of their energy from wind are all red states that went for Trump. These governors aren't doing it because they care about climate change. Uh, the, 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 you know, you've got senators like Chuck Grassley saying you'll you'll pull, the, pull those wind subsidies over my dead body. That's because they they buy into the competitiveness aspect. They buy into the jobs aspect. So there's room here to to find a solution or to find some solutions over the next three years. And to your point, Dick, that you brought up. After Bush withdrew from Kyoto in 2001, 2005, we got a major piece of of energy policy legislation, followed up by EISA, another piece of major energy uh, policy legislation in 2007. And and this included uh, a number of tax credits for renewables that laid the groundwork for what we see today. So I, I think there is a danger in, in Europe overreacting to this and thinking that it's truly about them, that it's a loss of trust. Surely, I mean, this reinforces the fact that the Trump administration is skeptical of multilateralism. We knew that, we already knew that. Um, so, so I think it's, it's very much in Europe's interest to be very cool headed uh, and rational about their own interests in this and where they might might intersect. On the, uh, the green if bonds I, thing there's is, is there's one w- area. Should
4: we maybe sort of, would it be possible to just tag on so yeah, that we can please. expand yeah, the, the totally. topic? Because I I, I think, um, you know, I, I would also recommend not misreading sort of the the perception of of this development sort of in the EU because the EU doesn't sort of feel necessarily slighted or affronted uh, by this directly. The the reason why basically on the same day, several heads of state and governments sort of stood up and issued a joint statement to, to um, you know make sure. That, that it was clear that their commitment was unwavering is because they uh, sort of had to try and contain any possible fallout and sort of the, uh, any kind of potential effect on other countries also signaling sort of that they might now consider leaving. So yeah. it's all about not losing the achievement of the Paris Agreement. It's not so much about an influence on the EU. So, you know, I think that's... You know, it's a more of a geopolitical sort of interest, it's not a an, an more narrow EU interest. Although there is an EU, also an EU economic interest in sort of keeping that agenda alive. I don't gonna yeah. we say something about the
2: green bonds. Yeah. Oh, just the, I think the green bonds thing is is absolutely the sort of, you've got the bads and the goods, right, there's pricing bads, which is carbon pricing, has no chance in red states. Uh, and, and all the states that are in the, we are still in coalition, are mostly coastal blue states. But but like I said, this a lot of the states that are actually producing the most renewable energy or is a proportion of their of their energy mix are, are the red states. That's because it's about supporting goods, right? It's tax cuts, like you said, for for, for green investment. Um, the key thing here is harmonization at the global level. When you're talking about creating a market for this, so they're really promising things. China, uh, People's Bank of China, is, is coming up with guidelines for green bonds. Just, just recently, um, the India uh, Securities and Exchange Board uh, published its own principles for, for green bonds. I think the, the next step here, we've got two things. Number one is alignment of all these principles, of all these guidelines, so that we do create a global liquid market, which is crucial for scale. And the second one is proving that these green bonds are delivering lower cost of capital than they would otherwise have. If you show that you're delivering lower cost of capital for green investment, that's, that's when you start to tip the scales.
3: Okay. I want to, before I get to the China leadership thing, one thing that I want, when you talk, hands down, we're talking about cows and Arby's, I just think this is so much fun. Um, <laughs> but in terms of like the coal job transition, I mean, I, you know, I'm in conversations with folks out in Montana, in West Virginia, Kentucky. I'm having a meeting next month about um, U.S., comparing U.S.-China coal transitions. What are they doing on jobs? And just so you know that in China, there's a few more people in the coal industry than Arby's, yeah. all right? Um, but I feel like that that, you know, with, you know, the, Trump administration is here and I think it's an opportunity for those of us particularly in D.C. to let's switch our conversation and let's talk about, well, what about the coal transition? And, and bringing, the, you know, what is China doing, what are we doing, what are lessons learned? Because China is looking for answers to that because they got a whole lot more
4: working in the coal sector. Um, so are we, by the way, looking for okay. answers. Right. So this is another topic. I think that, that actually could be a subject for you know sort of a, a dialogues between the EU and China, but also you know for other multilateral. Core. So we need to talk later, maybe have you guys come and talk as well.
3: Um, yeah, uh, Chi- what does Chinese leadership look like on climate? It's like well, I think so much of what they do, they are focused domestically, right? I mean that everyone understands that. I mean that. And that said, that one little point I forgot to mention in terms of like that's, on, that's veering towards the not so good on leadership with climate is the, um, the, an industry most of you have never heard of. You ever heard of coal to gas, coal to liquids, coal to chemicals? There could be coal to ice cream, I'm not sure. But <laughs> China is making stuff out of coal because they have it. Um, the plans right now of, of coal, we call it the coal conversion sector. The, the, the plants that exist in coal conversions, the ones that are being built and ones being planned when those all come online by the end of this next few years, that'll be equivalent to China's current 10% of all their CO2 emissions, right? And so that, but again, it's back to that jobs issue. You're losing jobs in the coal-to-power sector, so they're just the local governments are shifting them. So that so it's an issue of whether or not Beijing can actually control what the provinces are doing, but the provinces are doing what they want to do to maintain stability. Um, I think. Um, China is, you know, maybe in terms of their broader vision, in terms of, you know, like, you know, they bought on to the, you know, with the U.S. vision of, of markets. I mean, again, markets with Chinese characteristics, but there's still, but they, you know, why is it that, that Xi Jinping said he wanted, you know, CO2 emissions trading? And they're also talking, you know, following the U.S. kind of lead on, you know, another nerdy topic, Green Dispatch that China's working with a number of US organizations on how, when you're gonna put power on the grid, that maybe they're going, to, they're going to try to prioritize cleaner power. So they're trying to create institutions within China to really shift, they're shifting doing green dispatch because that's gonna make the market. So I, th- I think the Chinese really, they're with the whole market thing, and they also probably, they embrace the voluntary, not so keen on monitoring by international organizations, yeah. And that's so that so that again, leadership, you know, I mean, within the country, you know, they're they're quite proud of what they're doing. But yeah, I I don't I, I don't see them being quite the same as, you know, what the U.S. was. Okay, our
1: time is up, and I, didn't, I like it. and I didn't have to use the Socratic method. You
0: all- In closing, I would like to thank the conference organizers and the speakers on the panel. I produced this episode with help from my colleagues at Ecologic Institute. To view a full conference program and watch a video of the town hall discussion, visit www.eleap.eu and search for the Atlantic Council on YouTube. This was the last episode of the Elite Network podcast series. Over the last eight episodes, we covered an array of topics, from climate adaptation in the EU and California, to energy efficiency, energy democracy, and implementation of the Paris Agreement. We also brought you insights from the Elite Final Conference, including keynote talks by top energy entrepreneurs and decision makers. We hope that these discussions have been informative and enjoyable. I would like to thank Matthias Duva and Robert Oswald of Ecologic Institute for helping produce the series, as well as ELEAP fellows Julia Elkin, Alexander Franca, Asale Maforki, and Andrea Elish for their expert input. Our theme music was written and performed by Nick Evans. And of course, finally, thank you for listening.